Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only show from RNZ Sport. I'm Joe Porter. In the programme this week, one of the biggest names in sport is heading to New Zealand with tennis star Serena Williams set to headline Auckland's ASB Classic. New Zealand rugby cops another public flogging for their handling of the hotly debated Lossier Filippo saga. We put the tough questions to NZR boss Steve Chu. Golf loses one of its biggest icons. We look back at the life of the great Arnold Palmer. New Zealand heavyweight Joseph Parker aims to box his way one win closer to a world title fight, while his younger brother gets set to make his professional debut. Netballer Laura Langman discusses why she's turned her back on the Silver Ferns to play in Australia, and we chat to the most capped international rugby referee of all time, Nigel Owens, about his remarkable journey from the pits of despair to the top of his profession. Getting the world's leading women's tennis player to New Zealand has been four years in the making. The 22-time Grand Slam champion and former world number one Serena Williams will headline Auckland's ASB Tennis Classic in January. The American is currently ranked world number two, having lost the top spot earlier this month after a world record equaling 186-week stint as the women's top player. Tournament director Carl Budge told sports reporter Matt Chatterton he almost cried when he had confirmation of Williams' signing. Almost tears, mate. It's, uh, it's been four years in the making, so yeah, it was certainly one um, when we'd got so close in the past, uh, and to, to finally be able to have it done and, uh, and get the agreement was a special moment. And so there was a few cheers from New York and a lot of excitement back, uh, back in the office uh, when, we, when we updated them as well. Why was the process so drawn out? Why did it take sort of so long to convince them? I, I guess when, you, when you're dealing with those true superstars, and yeah, there's, there's not too many bigger names in sport in general than Serena Williams. And, uh, yeah, to, for Serena to change her plans, to, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, a straightforward process. There's so many demands. If, if we were targeting um, Ivanovic as we have in, in the past, you know, we might be competing with Brisbane or Hopman Cup, where for Serena, every tournament in the, in the world starts with wanting to have Serena Williams at their event. And so, uh, yeah, from, from that perspective, you've got a lot of competition and you know, you've got to be creative. How much, I mean, obviously, Venus has been out here a couple of times. How much was her influence, how much did she influence, I guess, Serena's decision? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm sure a lot. Um, you know, we, I, I don't know, I haven't had that conversation with Venus, and I purposely respect Venus the player. And so I, I never talked to Venus really about Serena. Uh, Venus is an outstanding player in her own right. And so um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what conversations they had behind closed doors, but I dare suggest we know how much Venus has loved coming here. Uh, you know, maybe she did whisper to a little sister that's not such a bad way to kick off a year. What uh, were some of her uh, Serena's prerequisites, I guess, for coming out here? Look, to be fair, it's all about preparation. And, you know, uh, she wants to win Melbourne. You know, and Serena does not like losing Grand Slams, and she 
was edged in in Melbourne by Curva this year, and you know there there'll be a there'll be a big chip on that shoulder. So for her, it was about preparation, about wanting to come out and, and hit some good balls and and go over to Melbourne feeling really good in her game. And, and we know we can provide that. We've done that for players in the past. One of our our biggest strengths is that we are. Uh, we're a single week, so you know, we're not like uh, some of our competitors across the Tasman. There's guys and girls. When Serena Williams wants to train, she'll train. When Serena Williams wants to play, she'll play. Uh, there's, we, we don't have as many local players, and we're not having to think of a Bernard Tomic or a Sam Stozer on, on when she's going to be able to play and when she's getting access to centre court. For us, she can be that focus. and um, you know, Those little things make a world of difference. You, when, when you're the biggest player in the world, you want to make sure you're being looked after as the number one priority, and, and we can offer that. Obviously last year's field was probably one of the best we'll ever see here in Auckland. Uh, comparatively, how is it looking this year? Are we going to see similar type of field? Look, you know, the, the event's in such great shape at the moment that the sales job's becoming easier and easier. And I should be telling you it's getting harder and harder, but it's, uh, it's when, when you've got Venus coming back year on year, when you've got Ferrer coming back year on year, it sends that message to the dressing room that, that players want to, it's a great place to go and, and there's a bit of trust there. Um, and so, look, yeah, I'm confident we'll have another really strong field. Obviously, Serena's going to send a few scares down the field. There's no, no question about that. Um, you know, would you want to start week one playing against Serena Williams? So it's, um, there, there's a bit of that, but yeah, we're always pretty confident what, uh, what we're able to roll out. Will we see the Williams sisters playing here? Yeah, I, I think everyone's asked that question today. Uh, look, I, I hope so, is, is the answer. I don't know. Um, they don't typically play together. They, the, the only place they typically play together is at Grand Slams. So it's, uh, it's a long shot. It would be a, a really big change in their schedule. Um, and I'm not sure what Venus's plans are yet. Uh, Venus still needs to decide what Venus wants to do week one. Um, but you know, she's done enough for us and been good to us that you know, if, if there was any remote chance that she wanted to come, we'll do everything we can to secure that, as I think she's deserved it. Carl Budge talking to Matt Chatterton. New Zealand rugby concedes it has lessons to learn from the handling of Lossier Philippe's discharge without conviction for a vicious assault on four people in central Wellington. Philippe stood down from his position with the Wellington Lions on Tuesday. Wellington rugby has also admitted it should have known more about the assaults by Philippe before this week. No one from that organisation attended any of the court hearings, despite Philippe being under contract at the time. New Zealand Rugby Chief Executive Steve Chu told Morning Report's Susie Ferguson he became involved in the case on Monday. Obviously this um, incident occurred when Lossie was still at school. Uh, he was 17 at the time. He was still uh, inside a school community. Uh, and while he was inside the, the rugby um, kind of catchment, if you like, because he'd been picked for, for representative sides, Wellington let the court process run its course. And I'm not sure that all the information was made available or was made public. Could Wellington have dug a little bit deeper at the time? That may be one of the lessons to learn from here. But, you know, we relied, or well, certainly Wellington relied on the fact that he'd been charged, pleaded guilty and was dealt with by the court. And He, then, wa- he was you know, fully under contract, the though. He was fully under contract here, though, so isn't that then meaning that this has a level of responsibility for Wellington Rugby and shouldn't they have availed themselves of the facts and gone to court? It's a public hearing. Well, yeah, but yes, but look, he pleaded guilty and was discharged without conviction, right? So they, they, I think, to be fair to them, they gave the kid a second chance. Now, whether he, whether the matter was serious enough to allow that second chance to happen if he did it with hindsight, I think that's a fair question. We clearly all feel... For the victims here, this is a very serious assault of four people, two of them women, simply not good enough, and we don't want that in our game. But we also don't want to throw young kids on the, on the scrap heap without going through a process either. So that's what we've done the last 48 hours, I think. But I suppose uh, that's that's part of the... But 
that's part of the question, though, here, isn't it, Mr Chu, that if he's being, being given a second chance without people knowing really what went on, isn't that in itself a dereliction of duty? Well, I wouldn't go... I'm not sure I'd use those words. I think at the end of the day, there's probably a lesson here that we may need to ask the police or the courts for more information when something like this occurs. But Did- I think Wellington acted in good faith in, in this instance because the judge dealt with the matter. He did they act in good faith or did they have their eyes shut? No, well, I, don't, I think that's a matter for someone else to decide. I, I know Stephen, I know the Wellington Union, they're good people. Um, and the judge dealt with this in the first instance, and that's where the responsibility lies. He had all the facts. What sanction, if any, did Lossi Filippo face within rugby before he stepped down yesterday? Uh, I, well, actually, I don't have that in front of me, but I, I know he had to do with community service. I understand some of that was done through the rugby environment, and certainly he is getting a lot of support for the things that he needs to manage, one of which is obviously anger. But he still got picked for the teams, he still got to play, training was unaffected, all that? Yes, he has, he has, but I think, again, I don't think that the severity of these assaults was known until the story broke a couple of days ago. And Wellington have acted pretty quickly. It is an employment matter. We do have to work our way through a process and now he's taken out of the environment and everyone can take a deep breath and work out what can be done to make sure that we get these things done better in the future. But also we provide, provide the support we want to provide for our young people. Mm. We don't throw them out on the street, Susie. But isn't this the problem, that these decisions were being made and being taken without any information, without, effectively in a complete vacuum? Well, again, I've already agreed with you that we needed to have more information. We didn't have it, but the matter was before the courts. And sometimes those matters are kept quite private. Well, this was a, it was a public hearing, though, so people could certainly have gone on to find out. And, and I suppose the problem here is that he's hardly the first rugby player in this sort of situation. The New Zealand Herald, don't know if you've seen it, have put together, I suppose it's a sort of a first 15 of players who've escaped convictions for offences, including assaults, drink driving, that kind of thing. It's beginning to look like New Zealand rugby has a culture problem. Well, we've certainly accepted that we haven't got things right. I mean, in any given moment, we've got 150,000 people playing the game every Saturday. We've got 600-odd professional players on a contract of some level or another, and we're just a reflection of society. We are going to have problems. We have young men who are of an age, and young women, actually, who get into trouble. We're no different from any other cross-section. And I you know, just, just remember, this, this young fellow was at school when this assault took place. He actually wasn't in a rugby environment. He was in a school community. And so we just got to we just got to accept that we will get young men who make mistakes. We've got to work very hard to provide them with the support and the education to learn their responsibilities and mm. try and be better at this going forward. But we will never have it a hundred percent. That is just unfortunately our reality. Well, as we much as he was, New Zealand, we just mirror New Zealand society, Susie. We're not rugby doesn't get these these people brand spanking new. This kid came out of a family, he came out of a community, and he came out of a school. But as much as he is within that environment, because he's under contract, he is also in the rugby environment. And is the problem here that behaviour like his is being condoned at the highest levels? You've just got to look at, if you just let me finish, you've just got to look at someone like George Moala. In 2012, he was found guilty of injuring with intent after a fight in an Auckland bar. The prosecutor said that his victim was described as being, quote, on the ground with blood pouring away as blows continued to come. He still wears the all-black jersey. Yes, he has. And, look, George went through a, um, a major process. One of the good things that we got out of the George situation that he is now and has led some of our education work. So if you would like us to show you some of the stuff that he has done, 
He has been at the forefront of going in front of our young men, people like Rossi, and telling them how you can get yourself into the wrong situation and make bad decisions and hurt people and get things wrong. That is the reality of it. But also, I think the upside, not just for rugby, but for sport generally, is that we can turn some of these lives around. And for every one that we fail, there will be several that we are successful, and we stand by that. But considering just recently there's been the Chiefs saga, which I'm sure I don't have to remind you of, you've been chief executive here for nine years. All of these that are in the Herald, for example, this morning, all of these are on your watch. And you're saying, what can be done about this? Well, surely an awful lot more needs to be done and you can't just simply hold your hands up and say, oh, it's society. No, I'm not doing that. Um, We've got a lot of things in train. Since the Chiefs situation uh, occurred, we've been talking to a lot of other agencies who are offering to help us, which is fantastic. And we'll keep working really hard. But as I say, every Saturday, there's 150,000 people playing rugby, doing good things in those communities. We will have mistakes. We do not say that we accept them, we simply say that we have to be realistic about what we can achieve. But don't you, don't you, don't you do accept them and don't you condone them, Mr Chu? No, we don't. By by saying that people can still continue to play, that their career can still be unaffected by these things and they can still continue to play at the highest level for the All Blacks. No, there have to to be consequences and in George Case there were. He he, he worked his way through again, he worked his way through a court system. What consequences did he face? When he came back into our environment, what we got him to do, he's on, he's certainly he's on a, a suspended position in terms of his contract, so he doesn't have a second chance. He's, he's had his, and he has helped us with our education programmes, and his contribution has been meaningful, positive, and working forward. Just to think about someone else in this case, pretty significant person, one of the victims here, Greg Morgan. He had a promising future in rugby, and he no longer has that because he's no longer able to play rugby. So what exactly is rugby going to do for him? Well, I think Wellington Rugby have, have uh, in the last 24 hours, said they'll reach out and talk to, to him. I, I don't know the young man personally. I mean, all this has happened quite quickly. Um, but again, you know, we, we, there are victims in this and we, we are absolutely sympathetic to that. I'm not sure what else we can do for him. That conversation will happen with Wellington Rugby. Steve Chu speaking to Susie Ferguson. Arnold Palmer, one of golf's greatest players who helped propel the game just as television was coming of age, died earlier this week at the age of 87. He died in hospital in Pittsburgh where he had been undergoing heart tests since last week. Palmer, who was part of the Big Three with Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player, won seven major titles, including four at the Masters, two at the British Open and one at the US Open. Here's our sports editor, Stephen Hewson. And here's the golfer who is the master today, Arnold Palmer. Here's his wind-up putt. He gets a 70, 12 under par, and the Masters by six shots. The man he dethroned, Jack Nicholas, helps him don the traditional green jacket that goes with the Masters. Growing up in Pittsburgh and with his father, the resident professional and greenkeeper at La Trobe Country Club, a young Arnold Palmer broke 100 for 18 holes before turning eight. He came to prominence in 1954 when, working as a paint salesman, he won the U.S. amateur title and turned professional soon afterwards. Palmer was in his prime as a golfer in the 1960s when he won seven major titles. He was a two-time PGA Tour Player of the Year, winning the accolade in 1960 and 1962, and was responsible for coining the Grand Slam of golf. I had won the Masters and the Open, 
and uh, was flying to Europe for the British Open with a guy by the name of Bob Drum. And I said, why don't we put together the Grand Slam of professional golf, which would be the U.S., the British, the PGA, and the Masters. And he said, that's a great idea. And then he, he wrote a lead story on it, and uh, it became a popular thing almost immediately. Nicknamed the King, Palmer never managed to complete the Grand Slam, failing to win golf's fourth major, the PGA Championship, where he finished runner-up on three occasions. His defining moment came in the 1960 US Open, when he began the final round seven strokes and 14 players off the lead, but he stormed to victory amid a flurry of birdies. He was the first professional golfer to earn a million dollars in career earnings, and even in his 80s was earning more than $25 million a year through endorsements. In 1966, he came to New Zealand, with large crowds turning out to watch him play New Zealand's first major winner, Sir Bob Charles. The last of their four matches was at Auckland's Middlemore Club. Palmer's score ends at 75, giving him a four-round aggregate of 290, eight strokes behind Charles. The left-handed New Zealander therefore wins the game. New Zealand golfer Phil Totorangi says one of his most cherished memories is playing the opening two rounds of the 2003 US Masters alongside Palmer. Being paired with Arnold was like playing with your grandfather in um, one of the biggest tournaments in the world, really. He was long past his best, but to be part of some of the welcomes that he received at just about every green over the course of 36 holes was something very special. Long-time friend and rival Jack Nicholas says Palmer transcended the game and he was an icon. His popularity was underlined with a drink named in his honour, as well as an airport, a golf tournament, hospitals and streets. Palmer received the two highest civilian honours in the United States, the Congressional Gold Medal and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The King's last public golf shot was the ceremonial tee shot at last year's British Open. For Checkpoint, Stephen Hewson. Nicknamed the King, Palmer was the first professional golfer to earn a million dollars in career earnings and even into his 80s was earning more than $25 million a year through endorsements. Former New Zealand professional Phil Tatorangi made his first Masters appearance in 2003. He told Matt Chatterton it was a shock to find himself paired with one of the sport's all-time greats. When you get to play your first Masters and you're paired with um, Arnold Palmer, um, you've got enough on your plate as it is to, uh, to try and focus on um, with navigating the course at the Masters and all the nerves that were abound, but um, to find out that you're going to be paired with one of the legends of the game, a four-time winner of the Masters um, over the first two days. Uh, and it just happens to be the other guy in the pairing was Shrine Moore. Um, so, um, I don't know, maybe I should go and buy a lotto ticket or something today. All the stars are aligning but in some way or another. But uh, for, for for being paired with Arnold, it's like playing with your, um, your grandfather in um, one of the biggest tournaments in the world, really. And, and in that respect, you're... Um, you know, it was a pretty cherished memory. It was long past his best, but the, to be part of some of the welcomes that um, he received at just about every green over the course of 36 holes was something very special. You're trying to do your best for yourself, but you didn't want to miss a moment of the coronation of Arnold Palmer. It was at the time going to be his last um, appearance at Augusta. He would go on to, to play a couple of other times, but um, to be a part of that was, uh, yeah, a lifelong memory. I hope, I mean, as you say, it was getting towards the end of his career, but please tell me that you managed to uh, beat him over the 36. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did. I was able to 
kind of be around for the weekend. Arnold played his absolute heart out for a couple of rounds in the 80s, and it was just at the time when Augusta was getting stretched to uh, a length that was just a little beyond him. But uh, nevertheless, he he was a, a tough competitor, and and he was going to go down swinging, and um, and he certainly did. Phil Tatorangi talking to Matt Chatterton. New Zealand heavyweight Joseph Parker's mother, Sala, gets nervous every time her son enters the boxing ring. Well, now she'll have twice the nerves as Joe's younger brother, John, is set to make his professional boxing debut. After a five-year hiatus from fighting, the 22-year-old will box on the undercard of brother Joseph's bout with Russian Alexander Dimitrenko in Auckland on Saturday. And as Matt Chatterton found out, it was John, not Joseph, who was touted as the next big thing in their amateur fighting days. You could be mistaken for thinking that hard-hitting sound is Joseph Parker, but no, it's actually his little brother John. Both Parkers went through the amateur boxing ranks during their teenage years. John was even a national champion in the light and middleweight divisions. Instead of following his brother into the professional ranks, John gave the sport up. But after spending the last two years following Joseph's progression, the younger Parkers re-entering the ring. John says Joseph has been a big inspiration behind his return. I guess just seeing my brother struggle through the trainings and remembering the times that we struggled together kind of made me want to go back to that time that we did everything together but I was actually a part of it rather than just helping with it. Growing up, John was considered the more talented Parker but discipline let him down. Joseph says his younger brother was a thrill to watch as an amateur and expects much the same tomorrow night. If I had to compare him to someone, it would be like a little Mike Tyson. He was just, he just went there for the, for the kill. Then when the bell rang, it's just like he held his breath for three minutes and he would just throw all his punches and then when the bell rang again, he would start breathing again. Was, that's how exciting it was. And as brothers do, the pair enjoyed a bit of play fighting during their teenage years, despite their parents' disapproval. But given Joseph is over half a foot taller and two years older, John learned quickly not to mess with his big brother. I have never thrown a punch until one time that I, I just clipped him a little bit. And he ran. And I ran away. Then I put Jason too fast. There'll be no running tomorrow night though when John lines up against 27-year-old Ratu Dawai from Christchurch before big brother Joe headlines the show in Monaco. For extra time, call Matt Chatterton Tine. Netball veteran Laura Langman has turned her back on the Silver Ferns and signed to play for the Sunshine Coast team in Australia next year. 30-year-old Langman first played for the Silver Ferns in 2005. She was granted a dispensation to play for New South Wales this year in the now-defunct Trans-Tasman competition. But with the launch of a new New Zealand domestic competition next year, Netball New Zealand is refusing dispensations and players who head overseas are not eligible for the national side. Langman told sports reporter Bridget Tunnicliffe it was not an easy choice to make. It was a really, really tough decision uh, and it's really sad with the splitting competition that it came down to that. Um, but I think you can't make decisions in life because you're scared you're going to miss out on something and nothing's ever guaranteed. So I thought it'd be great to keep challenging myself to be the best player I can be um, and took the contract over there um, with Knowles. Uh, and we've got a great little team and I'm really excited to um, be a part of building something for the Sunshine Coast um, right from the word go. Were you afraid or are you afraid you might get a bit of grief? 
Oh, absolutely. I um, I understand kind of decisions as you make in sports people. Some people are support you. Some people can't believe what you're doing. And I get it. I, I totally do. But a philosophy that I've always lived by is um, I want to be the best that I can be. And it's a massive challenge. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's really sad that um, I won't be available for the Ferns because it's always been something I've prided myself on to be available selection. But it's a rule, and I respect it. And, um, yeah, we'll watch the space. Do you plan on coming back in 2018 so you'll be eligible for the Com Games and, the, and then the World Cup the next year? Yep, that's the plan. Uh, I always assess each year as it comes. It must have been difficult having to make this decision when you were in the middle of a recent Silver Ferns campaign. Yeah, it's hugely. Um, and to be fair, I think why it took so long was because um, I didn't want to have to think about it whilst in Ferns camp. Uh, it was a big challenge coming back from having played pretty staunch Australian style to come back and get back as quick as I can into the New Zealand style so I didn't want to have to think about it uh, and I was lucky that Sunshine Coast um, gave me the time to you know, dot my eyes and cross my T's and um, here we got to. Do you think it's inevitable that other silver ferns might follow you? Uh, look, I can't speak for anyone else but um, I can tell you now, knowing um, that I uh, won't be allowed in the environment next year um, Eight times I have to hold back the tears because since when I started, I always wanted to be available to play the fern. So that's really heartbreaking for me. So I would say anyone making that um, situation, everyone's individual. And it's certainly hard. Laura Langman speaking to Bridget Tunnicliffe. Welshman Nigel Owens is one of the highest ranked and most respected referees in rugby union. He controlled last year's World Cup final and is the most capped international referee of all time with 71 tests under his belt, breaking South African Jonathan Kaplan's record earlier this year. He spoke to Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan about being the first openly gay international referee, his off-field battles and the immense pressure that comes with being a test match official. Your ability to, to deal with the massive pressure that comes in refereeing a test match now. Not only the, the pressure has always been there, but the pressure now is as, as tenfold because the speed of the game has increased. You have so many cameras replaying things time and time over again from different angles and slowing them down. And all this is played on the big screen in the stadiums where the spectators and even the players on the field can see now a decision that a referee makes is, is not is not right sometimes. Or if the referee makes a mistake, then the players see that in the game, the spectators see it, and, and the referee sees that he's done a mistake as well. And then you to referee the rest of that game knowing that you've made a mistake in that game. But to rise above that and not try to make another mistake to try to make up for that, because then that you're not being honest in your refereeing. So the pressure now to do that is, is absolutely massive. And I think that's what sets the, the referees at the top of the games apart are the ones who are able to deal with that pressure and rise above that. And also as well the balance of getting the empathy and, and, the, and the whistle blowing right um, as well. So there's a lot of things I think that do set referees out that the ones that, that, that get to the top and, and remain on the top. You have a reputation for something else, I guess, and, and, and that is um, the willingness you've had to, to speak about the difficulties in your life and you do in this book. And it goes to the heart, I think, if we go all the way back to when you were a young guy in Wales working a lot with young people in, in schools um, as, a, as a caretaker for a while and working with youth, something you said you might go back to. You speak very openly about the personal challenges you've had in your life. One was a decade-long battle with bulimia. 
um, which we know is far more uh, commonly prominent as or experienced by, by women, but it happens to young men as well, uh, and that was also hooked up perhaps with the steroids you were taking, trying to get your weight under control and trying to bulk up. And you talk also of your experience grappling with the fact uh, that you were gay, perhaps in a, in a community or a society that, that wasn't accepting of that, and indeed in, in the rugby environment. And you were very honest about just how hard that was, how bad that got, the, the time you found yourself on top of that mountain you spoke of earlier, the mountain of stone, um, a, a, attempting suicide. Why is it important? Why did you choose to share such personal details of your life? Um it happened by by chance, to be honest. Um, I after I'd um, I'd come out and I'd refereed a, quite a few internationals, and um, I got approached by um, a Welsh um, book company, um, uh, and I said, Look, I'm, I, I'm not going to write an autobiography, but who wants to read about a referee who hasn't achieved anything yet? And they said, Well, there's much more to your life than that. And I said, Well, yes, but if I'm going to do this book, I'm going to have to be because to me, one of the most important values of of rugby, um, but also as well, to me, the most important value uh, as a person is is your integrity and your honesty. Um, to me, that that becomes above all anything else. And um, I said, if I'm going to write an autobiography, I'm I'm going to have to be honest about everything in my life. And I don't really want my sort of dirty linen. You like, you know what I've been through, the difficult times, and it's. it's never easy to talk about these times in your life where, you know, you were within 20 minutes of, of, of passing away from this world when, you know, I, I did something one night that I that I would regret for the rest of my life and something that I have to have to live with for the rest of my life and what I put my mum and dad through when I when I left them in the north and said I couldn't carry on anymore and, you know, they, they found me then six, seven hours later by the police helicopter and airlifted me to hospital and another 20 minutes and, and it would have been too late to save me. So, when you have to churn all this back up again, it's it's not easy, and it's not easy talking about it now as well. But so I, it, I, I said no first of all to this book, and then within the next couple of months, um, a couple of articles were in the local press and in the national press as well of of me coming out and um, how I try to take my own life and how I now getting on in my life and everything like this and. And I had quite a few letters and a few uh, things on social media, on Facebook messages. I had a lot of letters written to me um, from young people who were going through the same thing. Um, some parents who um, were witnessing the same thing with their children. And, and the letter probably that sort of made me change my mind was I had a letter from a, from a mother who who was thanking, thanking me for, for telling my story. My Her son had read my story online where... He had tried to take his own life at 16 years of age. And about two months later, he'd read my story, and then he plucked up the courage to tell his parents, look, this is why I try to take my own life, uh, because what Nigel Owens has gone through is what I am going through now. And they sort of told him, look, you have nothing to worry about, and he realized he had nothing to worry about, and then the worry of what was he going to do it again was, was literally gone. And they sent me this letter pretty much saying, you know, thank you for, for saving our son's life. And and then I thought, oh, hang on now, if, if this story is helping people, um, then maybe it is worth sharing the story. And then 
I didn't go back to the publishers. They came back to me and said, look, you know, how, do you really, uh, you know, we really like it. And I said, right, okay, then if I'm going to make a book, it's going to be an honest account. And uh, so that's how the, the telling of the story came about, really. It was, was by chance. And then when my book came out and people reading the book, it came out in English then a year later. And uh, and all those experiences I'd been through, that uh, I had people even sort of ringing me or getting in touch personally or writing letters and thanking me for for helping them or helping somebody in their family or helping somebody that they that they knew and and even though now when I do a lot of talks on on my past if you like and my experiences is it it's it's not easy to do it's and it's quite gut wrenching and it's you know becomes quite tearful and emotional sometimes but then but then I know by talking about it that that it does help other people and uh, and that's why I think it's important that um you know, if I'm able to share those experiences of those difficult times in my life with, with somebody else, and and even if it if it saves or helps one person, then then it's a good deed done. And uh, I know that it has helped a lot more than one person, and and I hope that my story will will help and, and encourage other people to to be who they are and to be themselves. So um, I don't do these talks for for money or to, to do these talks so people know what what my life has been like, you know, I, I do these talks because it's, it, it, it helps people. And, and I think that's important because I had nobody to, to listen to from their experiences when I was going through this difficult time in my life. And if I had, then I may not have sort of gone to that fateful night where, you know, I tried to attempt to take my, my own life in, in a night that, that probably changed my, my life forever, probably. Nigel Owen speaking to Catherine Ryan. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via email or social media. We'll be back with the next Extra Time show next week. Until then, I'm Joe Porter. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.